You're listening to the ERLC Podcast. Hello, and welcome back to this week's episode of the ERLC Podcast, where every week we're talking about our work here at the ERLC and focusing on what Christians need to know about the things going on in the world. I'm Josh Wester, and with me on the podcast today, as always, are my co-host, Lindsay Nicolay. Did you forget my name? <laughs> no. <laughs> I mean, I'm just going to start with I'm Josh Wester. <laughs> I'm Josh Wester. I'm Josh Wester, and with now me he on forgot the podcast his own today, name. He's, that's right. He's had, I think he's had too much caffeine this morning. No, I was just running to get back here, and now I'm out of breath. Anyway, <laughs> I'm Josh Wester, and with me on the podcast today, as always, are my co-host Lindsay Nicolay. Hello, everybody. Hey, Lindsay, and also with us is the ever faithful Brent Leatherwood. Hello, y'all from the headquarters of the ERLC. Wait, he is. Like why we, am, we can see it. Why am I not ever faithful? <laughs> Who's missed more I, podcast episodes, Lindsay or Brent? So that's an easy call, and listeners will know that that Brent is, you know, he, he often misses recordings or okay. you know, sometimes misses. But in any case, I was talking about his internet quality. Right. But who is here in <laughs> spirit 100% of the time? 100% oh. of the time. Yeah. Oh, I, there are times that you're with us, Lindsay, and I can not clearly you. tell you're not actually with us. No, no, no. <laughs> well, guys, um, it's another week to podcast, and Lindsay told us that she had low energy, but she's already picking it up some. And look, I'm excited. Uh, it's going to be a great show today. Later in the show, we're going to talk to a very special guest, Dane Ortland who is a pastor. He's the author of Gentle and Lowly, which is honestly one of the best uh, Christian books that you can read this year. If you're looking for a gift to get to uh, for a believer in your life, if they've not read this book, this would be an excellent, excellent gift for you to give them. But Lindsay, so that we can get started and to, you know, give you a chance, a chance to just prove how faithful you are, tell us what the ERLC has been talking about this week. Well, I have to start out saying I got that book for my husband for Christmas. He doesn't listen to the podcast, so he, it won't spoil the surprise. <laughs> uh, but I think it was one of those gifts where I actually bought something for someone else that I actually wanted for myself. So hopefully I'll get to read it too. I hear great things. Kicking off this week, we had a emphasis on... Um, on our Psalm 139 project, which is an amazing ministry that we get to be a part of where we present pregnancy resource centers with ultrasound machines. And we know that that a mom being able to see the image of her baby inside of her womb can change her um, abortive mindset if she has one and can help her to see that this this baby is, is a living, uh, breathing human. And so I want to highlight an article about that. And then also we're highlighting uh, the SBC's Lottie Moon Christmas offering. And Lottie Moon is just an incredible woman we'll talk about in just a few minutes. So first off, I want to start with an article by C. Ben Mitchell. And uh, it's titled, Who Counts as a Person? Of course, we already know that Brent Leatherwood does not because he's on my bad side this morning. Oh, wow. That's not in the article, though. Who counts as a person? Today's question in the abortion debate. So um, Ben Mitchell in this article addresses the fact that in the abortion debate, the question that used to rise to the forefront in the abortion debate was, is the embryo inside of the mom a human. And that question is pretty much settled. We know that, of course, from Scripture as believers, but we know that from science now. So people aren't asking that question. So instead, Ben Mitchell says, okay, so if you think someone is a human, how can you justify aborting that child 
from the mother's womb, ending the life of that child. And that's because the major question in the abortion debate now is who counts as a person? When does personhood begin? And so he talks through this with us. He he helps us to understand some of the arguments. I think it's an, an incredibly helpful article, especially if you want to be equipped to be able to argue for uh, the value of life at every stage from the womb to the tomb. So I've, I've got just uh, a lot of thoughts here. I these are going to be kind of random, so bear with me. But first of all, how awesome is it that we have someone like Dr. Mitchell writing for us? It's really awesome, Brent. Uh, yeah, I was going to say, I mean, Josh, you with, with all of your ethics acumen, uh, you can certainly attest to the fact that Dr. Mitchell is just an all-star in the field of ethics and in Southern Baptist life, frankly. Um, so I'm so appreciative uh, that that he wrote this piece for us. So thank you, Lindsay, for, for getting that for us. And then, you know, I, to me, this question just, it comes back to the age-old question that was posed to, to Jesus, who is my neighbor? And I think there are so many individuals out there that want to rob that neighborliness of the most vulnerable. And children at the very earliest stage of life are, by definition, the most vulnerable. And so I'm, I'm thankful uh, that we have a piece that's calling attention to this. I'm thankful that this week we had a really successful uh, focus uh, on life, and, uh, and that's what we're going to continue to do uh, at the RLC. Lindsay, I'm really glad that you highlighted this article. Obviously, I think that Dr. Mitchell is just incredible. But um, one of the things that he talks about in this article is something called personhood theory, which is what you were talking about when you set up the the conversation as we're, we're no longer discussing whether or not the the baby or the fetus inside of uh, inside of the womb is a human being. We're talking about when does it count as a person? And in this article, he is taking us to the center of this debate. And it is so helpful because it is setting up our readers to understand. And, and, and listeners, you can, you can go and take a look at this article. It is setting you up to, to know like what is at the center of the abortion debates right now. And one of the things that you can do as a Christian is just to affirm without question that every person who is a member of the human species is in fact a person, that every person who is a human being is created in the image of God, that they are a person, that their life matters, and that they carry, even the life in the womb, they carry all of the rights and dignity uh, of every other person walking around on the planet. Well said, and we are so thankful for Dr. Mitchell writing this, and I actually have to give a shout out to Jason Thacker because he is the one who acquired this article. So thank you, Jason. So moving on from that article, we are looking at something that has practical implications for believing this, that every person counts as a person. And that's an article by Amy Ford, whom we featured in our uh, interviews talking about her amazing ministry. And her article is titled, What You Can Do to Help Moms Choose Life, Getting the Church Ready to Care for Those with Unplanned Pregnancies. And you know, Amy's passion is to help mothers who find themselves in unexpected situations, fathers who find themselves in unexpected situations to be able to bring their children into the world and to be able to be equipped with the support need to care for little babies. And she um, she encourages us as the church to put uh, feet to our words and to find ways that we can be involved in loving these moms, loving these dads, loving these these children. And so 
she's going to help you in this article diagnose where you could get involved. And it doesn't have to be something like you starting your own pregnancy resource center. It can just be finding something that you're passionate about, like offering to babysit for, um, say, a single mom or offering to do some shopping for um, a family that's in need or something like that. So there are endless ways that we can serve. And this is what she said. The pro-life movement is filled with love and opportunity. The possibilities are endless, whether you partner with an organization that's already doing great things or start something new on your own, there's a place for you to help and serve. And so um, she just challenges us to be aware, to pray, and to gather together as the church uh, to be able to serve these families so that um, abortion would become unthinkable. And then finally, this is an article by Joey Klein titled, Five Things Your Kids and You Should Know About Lottie Moon. So I mentioned earlier that we're highlighting the Lottie Moon Christmas offering this week. And uh, this is such an important offering in the life of the SBC to be able to send missionaries to the nations to bring the gospel to the ends of the earth. And who better to uh, represent this than Lottie Moon? She was a missionary, a single woman, a missionary to China. She was a uh, pioneer in her rights and in her time. She was an incredible woman, and the Lord used her to do mighty things for his kingdom over there in China. And so there are five facts Uh, that Joey found as he was researching because he's involved in children's ministry. And it's presented as a lesson that you can teach your kids. So there's questions you can ask them. And it's really engaging. And I would highly recommend it. And I would recommend you you go over this with your kids, Brent and Josh. Yes, uh, absolutely. And I definitely want to teach my daughters about individuals like Lottie Moon who have been so incredible on the mission field. And uh, this past week uh, featured Giving Tuesday, which is uh, traditionally the the first Tuesday after Thanksgiving. That's a week that a lot of nonprofits, ourselves included, uh, IMB. Actually, it was funny. So uh, IMB's focus for Giving Tuesday and and this entire week uh, was the Lottie Moon Christmas offering. And so we want to make sure and highlight it alongside them. Uh, NAM had something called the the Chicken Challenge, uh, which was their focus uh, for, for this week for raising money uh, to give families chickens. Midwestern had a mug giveaway. Midwestern Seminary did. And and so, uh, and we had our focus on uh, our Psalm 139 project. So this week, the focus particularly for IMB was Lottie Moon. And um, I, I am hopeful uh, that we will see a huge outpouring of support for that fund because that truly empowers missionaries to go on the field and be sent uh, by IMB. They do such great work there. So this is great that we're highlighting uh, this piece that's coming on Friday. And I got to I gotta say, Lindsay, whenever you do this where we are proactively highlighting stuff that is yet to be published, I feel like we need like a little piece of music that comes in. Like I'm thinking of the old Conan O'Brien show when they used to do the in the year 2000 uh, (laughs) segment for what was to come. (laughs) I feel like we need something like that. (laughs) That's just a treat for our listeners there. uh, Getting to hear that that Leatherwood falsetto. Um, Look, I just have to go on the record affirming all the good things about Lottie Moon. This woman was the uh, was an SBC missionary pioneer. She is the, you know, we don't have SBC royalty, but if we did, she's at the top of the list. She spent 40 years 
as a missionary in China, if the information I read was correct because of the Lottie Moon Christmas offering, Southern Baptists have raised over $1.5 billion for international missions uh, because of her legacy. And she was a church member uh, before she went overseas at First Baptist uh, in Charlottesville, Virginia, uh, where John Broadus, who was one of the founders of Southern Seminary, was a pastor and is now pastored by a friend of the ERLC, Pastor Rob Pocheck, who is just an incredible guy. So shout out to Rob. But Mothers uh, of well, mothers and fathers of of small girls, I would encourage you. You you could do a lot worse than sharing this information about Lottie Moon uh, with your daughter. She was an incredible servant to the kingdom of God, and she is somebody who has left a tremendous legacy for Southern Baptist. You know, I think it's interesting that you mentioned mothers and fathers because it brought to my mind the fact that you know we we know about Lottie Moon, but what an incredible father and mother she must have had in that day and age to willingly send their single daughter overseas, knowing that they may they may never see her again. You know, it's a challenge for those of us who are parents and those of us with loved ones who, who maybe the Lord is calling to the mission field. Uh, so, of course, that is just a little smattering of the articles that we have going on at ERLC.com. We have a, videos. That's a good Thanksgiving word. We'll smatter in a gravy for your cream potatoes. <laughs> Again, we're just thankful to be able to, to bring you these important articles so that you can be equipped to be an effective witness for Christ uh, where he has called you. So, Brent and Josh, that is your look at what's happening at ERLC.com. Lindsay, I want to commend you on that especially faithful and excellent rundown of this week in ERLC content. And so, uh, Brent, that takes us to the culture section for the week. So tell us what's going on. Yeah, Lindsay, your your low Jeb ener- energy levels are are really starting to get up to to normal. Maybe by the end of this, we'll be higher than average. Well, listen, it it comes back, but you need to have sympathy because I am thirty four weeks pregnant. And you do not know what that is like and what it does to your energy levels. That's right. So, <laughs> and then and then you'll be the one who's only here in spirit. That's right. <laughs> All right. Taking a look at uh, at this week's news development. So we'll start on the coronavirus front because it's dominating the headlines. And unfortunately, we have to begin with a sad note. Wednesday was the highest national death total during the entire. COVID-19 pandemic. CNBC reports the United States reported a record 2,800 COVID deaths, the highest single-day death total ever reported, according to data compiled by Johns Hopkins University. The country also reported more than 200,000 cases of the virus on Wednesday, the second highest daily number of cases, according to that same data. CDC Director Dr. Robert Redfield said this, quote, the reality is December and January and February are going to be rough times. Uh, So this is very difficult news. There are so many people out there suffering in this moment. And to go with that, Axios reports that for the first time, we have topped over 100,000 hospitalizations for the first time. From the report, more than 100,000 Americans are now in the hospital with the coronavirus infection, a new record, an indication that the pandemic is continuing to get worse, and a reminder that the virus is very, still very dangerous. Hospitalizations are a way to measure severe illnesses, and severe illnesses are on the rise across 
the U.S. In some areas, health systems and healthcare workers are already overwhelmed and outbreaks are only getting worse. Uh, I saw a, a separate report uh, this week that said in all of East Tennessee, which includes uh, you know, Johnson City and the Tri-Cities and Upper East Tennessee, Knoxville and Chattanooga, there are now only eight ICU beds available in that entire region, which is astounding. So folks, be careful and be wise uh, because this, this virus is still raging. Yeah, and we need to be praying for our healthcare workers who are um, putting themselves in harm's way in order to serve us and are exhausted and their families as well. This hits close to home because the night before Thanksgiving, the gentleman who owned our lawn company that takes care of our lawn died. And the doctors don't quite know what it is. They couldn't get a diagnosis, but he did have COVID antibodies. So he had had COVID at some point and his lungs were shutting down. And so it sounds like some of the after effects of, of uh, COVID and what can happen to those who initially don't have bad symptoms, but then later on their body responds poorly to it. So it's just such, so tragic. 40 in his 40s, young 40s. And so again, it's just a reminder that this isn't mainly about us not getting sick, although I don't want to get sick, but it's about helping to protect other people too uh, because of the mysterious nature of this virus. So we, we are all tired of it. The good news is coming, Brent. I see in your notes that you're going to talk about. We're all tired of it. There will be a day when we don't have to lock down like this anymore, but we do want to protect our neighbors. That's right. And I, I appreciate the fact that you brought up protecting our neighbors, Lindsay, because that is like the Christian principle at the core of our approach to the pandemic. And Brent, you mentioned that earlier in the show as well. I think sometimes, you know, one of the things that, that sticks out to me, I was having a conversation uh, with a nurse recently, and her kind of commentary was basically, people don't realize that that even when you look at a hospital building, usually it's a, it's a pretty large facility. The, the ICU in any given hospital where COVID patients who are having serious adverse reactions to the virus, uh, those are not large compared to the size of the facility. The number of beds uh, that are available for people who require that expert level of, of care and, and constant care, there, there just aren't that many in any given location. And so when you see numbers, like the fact that the, the, this 200,000 number, it, it should provoke us to be even more cautious because uh, none of us want to be in a situation where ourselves or somebody that we love or care about uh, were, would suffer greatly or even potentially die uh, as a result of not having access to the kind of care that they need. And so good news is on the way, but, but we're still in a fairly uh, perilous time and we need to be as cautious as we can. That's right. So you both mentioned it. Let's talk about uh, some of that good news that is on the horizon. Vaccines are getting closer. The United Kingdom government announced on Wednesday that it has approved uh, Pfizer BioNTech's COVID-19 vaccine, which will, quote, be made available across the UK from next week. The UK has beaten the US to become the first Western country to give emergency approval for a vaccine that's found to be 95% effective with no serious side effects, reports Axios. So uh, this Pfizer vaccine is one of the initial ones that is in the late stage uh, for approval. And so uh, that that hopefully uh, will be coming soon here in the United States. Right behind uh, our friends across the pond in England, 
is Russia, though there has been some skepticism expressed about their, quote, Sputnik uh, vaccine. But NPR reports that Russian President Vladimir Putin has ordered mass immunization against COVID-19 as Russia races to reverse a surge in coronavirus cases and to be the first in the world to distribute its vaccine widely. Putin issued the order in a video conference with officials just hours after health authorities in Britain approved Pfizer's coronavirus vaccine. According to government figures, Russia has more than 2.3 million coronavirus cases, the fourth highest in the world. So as I mentioned, uh, lots of folks are are watching uh, what is going on uh, over in Great Britain. Uh, We're going to be obviously watching for for any effects uh, that, that would uh, happen in Russia if it's able to to mitigate uh, this virus, and then hopefully uh, the U.S. Uh, will will have our vaccines being distributed. Some experts are saying uh, as recently as later this month. As a matter of fact, I should mention here that was part of a conversation that occurred on Thursday of this week between our our own president of the RLC, Russell Moore, and and a friend of his, uh, Dr. Francis Collins. That's a, that's a name you may not be familiar with, but you're probably going to be familiar with it here over the next few weeks because Dr. Collins is the head of the National Institutes of Health, and this uh, government agency is responsible uh, for helping to um, seed and invest in uh, these sorts of early scientific breakthroughs in uh, the medical field. And so he has been very much in terms of making sure that these vaccine trials are, are uh, conducted safely and, and pouring over the research that's coming from them. So he's been very much involved in uh, getting these vaccines to this, this final step, and he's going to be instrumental uh, as they start getting their approvals over the next few weeks. And honestly, y'all, I thought, I thought this was a very good conversation. Once we have the link up, we'll put it in the show notes so, so folks can see it. Yeah, I mean, the feedback from the conversation between Dr. Moore and Dr. Collins has already been uh, incredible from pastors, from medical professionals, from people who have concerns and questions about the safety and efficacy of the virus. Like, this is a panel discussion you will not want to miss. Do you guys know what's awesome about Francis Collins? (laughs) Lindsay knows. Um, Well, well, the answer is basically, like, most things. Most things about him are awesome. Uh, He is... Uh, he sequenced the human genome. He led the human genome project, which <laughs> that's is that's what know, Lindsay was going to say. That's, that's right. What she was, it was right on the tip it's, of her tongue. It's just one of the coolest things. Not to mention, he is a he is a serious, committed, faithful Christian who loves Christ and models for us what it looks like to uh, to put our faith on display and to apply our faith to every good endeavor, and in this case, to to science and medicine. And so we're grateful to God for him, grateful for him taking the time to do this conversation. And Brent, I got to tell you, I am pumped, pumped about the vaccine news. Like, you know, nobody is more pro-vaccine than me. Uh, but I got to tell you, I think that anything that says Russia and Putin together in vaccine, I'm just going to, I'm just going to bow out of that one particular option. Is that <laughs> yeah, okay? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, the, as far as I know, the Sputnik vaccine is is not necessarily... Uh, coming here to the United States. That works for me. Well, I'm back to Francis Collins. You know, his example is one that makes me say, what have I done with my life? Mapping the human genome? I mean, come on. Uh, But the conversation was really delightful. His presentation was easy to understand. It's nice to hear from somebody who is 
rational, level-headed, who is an actual scientist and knows what they're talking about rather than an armchair scientist or a doctor like I can try to be myself. One thing that was really encouraging that he said, and I actually told my husband afterward, was that because of the type of vaccine this is, there's no chance that you'll be infected with COVID. And we've put out an explainer on that last week. We're going to have some more information this week. Uh, but it's not a live infection in your body. And I feel like that is amazing. And also we're addressing this week that the reason that we can develop these vaccines with such speed now is because of relatively new technology. That's what's amazing about living in a technological age where where our abilities to be able to do these things are just exploding and advancing. And so from what I witnessed and listened to, we can have great confidence in this vaccine and how it's how it's being developed. Of course, that doesn't come without trepidation. I mean, it's it's something unknown. It's something new. The unknown is kind of scary, and it will be for me. Uh, but I'm thankful for people like Dr. Collins who help ease our fears. Lindsay is just dropping the $5 words today. I need to say that before trepidation. Yes. <laughs> well, let me just say a couple of things there. Yeah, when Dr. Moore originally came up with this idea to, to do an interview uh, with Dr. Collins, his whole point is, hey, I want to equip the believer out there so that they kind of just understand more about these vaccines and, and how we got to them and, and answer just some of the, the questions that, that, that folks have out there. And at the same time, give us a window into what does it look like to get beyond this pandemic, which the, the vaccine is going to be a, a, an important part of that. And then, you know, for the interview itself, look, probably a lot of times if you hear, oh, hey, uh, there's going to be an interview with a world-class scientist you're probably thinking that the, you know, the conversation is going to be kind of way up here and lots of words like trepidation. But no, this, this question or this interview was really accessible. And, you know, I just think a, you know, a dumb bunny like me uh, can follow right along with the conversation. That just shows me like uh, Dr. Collins is, is really adept at, at communicating uh, to, to average folks to, to just make sure that we're really understanding all this. It was, it was fantastic. So I really uh, appreciated that aspect of it. Listen, I'm already starting the Fauci Collins 2024 campaign. <laughs> so <laughs> if you'd like to get on board, you know where to find me, info at ERLC.com. Well, there you go. You heard it here first. <laughs> there's going to be, there's already a super PAC forming and Lindsay's going to be the head I don't know if they know much about running the government, but I sure like them. So. <laughs> well, so anyways, like I said, we'll, we'll drop the link into that. Uh, we've got it up. We'll have it all over our ERLC platform so that folks can continue to access it and share it with your friends, uh, friends who, who might want to know more about the vaccines. All right. So we need that good news and, and we need, you know, just to kind of come together as a country to combat this uh, because we're continuing to see just different places treat the virus differently with respect to restrictions, what is allowed, what's not. Uh, so this week, there were several court cases that just kind of showed us that. Uh, Baptist Press reports that government restrictions against Christian schools in Kentucky and Michigan during the COVID-19 pandemic have been upheld by a federal appeals court. In Kentucky, uh, Governor Andy Bashir did not violate the religious liberty of kindergarten through 12th grade private religious schools in ordering a temporary suspension of their on-site classroom instruction, the Sixth Circuit ruled. And then in Michigan, 
A separate three-judge panel from the Sixth Circuit of Court of Appeals refused on November 20th to block an order from the Ottawa County Department of Public Health closing on-site instruction at Libertas Christian School for failing to follow certain guidelines to prevent the spread of the virus. But at the same time, the Supreme Court weighed in on another case. Uh, According to the Associated Press, the Supreme Court barred New York from enforcing certain limits on attendance at churches and synagogues in areas designated as hard to hit by the virus. Well, this is one that we were watching in particular at the ERLC because we filed an amicus brief uh, on behalf of uh, the folks that were challenging Governor Cuomo's order, uh, and we filed it uh, in support of basically showing that Governor Cuomo's orders we're not treating churches and houses of worship the same as other similarly situated entities. And that's exactly what the court came back and said, which is you are essentially targeting uh, these um, individual entities by, by not treating them the same. And so that that was a win. It was uh, ended up being a five to four split decision that came down Wednesday night. But even, I, I should note this, even in the dissents, a lot of them actually agreed with uh, the rationale of the ruling, what they were saying is, well, Cuomo changed this order kind of at the last minute, so it really just doesn't matter uh, at this point. So even that, I was taken, I, I took some heart away uh, from the four justices who who did not join in the majority. I did the same thing, Brent. Uh, the The overarching message here is that we can do two things at the same time. We can care about public health and safety, and we can protect religious liberty, and that even though it's not always the easiest call to make in terms of where to draw lines all the time, we, we don't have to compromise one to have the other. That's what the Supreme Court has said here. The reason the URLC uh, filed this amicus brief was because we were trying to make the very same arguments that that we can do both of these things at the same time. That's, that's kind of the big message that we want to get out there just to the public is that it, it is possible to balance these concerns and to protect both interests. It is encouraging to me uh, to, to know that even in this time of, as Dr. Moore called it, a plague and pandemic, we are able to secure the rights of conscience and the freedom to worship and the, the full protections for religious liberty that are so vital for our, for our nation to function. So moving along, in news from the political world, the incoming president of the United States— has hurt himself. CBS News reports that President-elect Joe Biden slipped and twisted his ankle while playing with his dog Major on Saturday. His doctor said a CT scan indicated that he has a hairline fracture in the midfoot area. Mr. Biden will likely require a walking boot for several weeks. So that that's probably uh, not ideal as you are trying to do the hard work of uh, transitioning an entire federal government. So we need the need the president elect to, to stay safe in this moment. <laughs> it's just funny that stuff like that is news. <laughs> I mean, I, I'm sad he hurt himself, but stuff like that happens every day. You just walk in the boot and keep on keeping on, Brent. And there you go. All right. Meanwhile, there is one campaign though that continues to soldier forward in the uh, now past 2020 election. NPR reports that even as President Trump fluctuates between false claims that he really won the 2020 election and that it was stolen from him, he is also seriously considering launching a bid for the 2024 Republican nomination. Two campaign sources and a third source with close ties to Trump's inner circle tell NPR. The three sources who were not authorized to speak to reporters and spoke on the condition of anonymity 
said a quick move by Trump to position himself for a comeback will have the impact of freezing out Republicans who may be considering a bid of their own and will enable Trump to continue to raise questions about the legitimacy of Joe Biden's presidency once the president-elect takes office in January. So this is certainly something uh, that is probably going to be with us in the headlines uh, through the, the Christmas season. As a matter of fact, I saw one report that suggested that President Trump could announce his bid for the 2024 election on Inauguration Day next January. Um, I mean, who knows the veracity of that? And obviously, lots of stuff can change. Uh, but, you know, this is this is where we are uh, as a number of these legal challenges uh, continue to, to move forward. One of those legal challenges is being led by Sidney Powell, an attorney out of Texas, uh, and Politico has this. I'm just going to read this. Judges have also been flummoxed by the procedural moves and errors committed by Powell, who was booted from Trump's legal team in November, but is still crusading to overturn the election results. Uh, and it details in there the, some of the miscues and whatnot uh, from the, the challenges. Gosh, the 2020 election. It just won't end. Well, like everything else in this year, Brent, uh, the 2020 election is just mimicking uh, the larger pattern of this, well, this revolution around the sun. And um, <laughs> God, you know, it's just, oh, it's it's just pretty, it's pretty sad and pretty awful. Uh, if you are one of those people who have been following uh, the, I'll call them travails of the Trump campaign's attempts to, you know, litigate the election results uh, so far, it has not gone very well. Uh, and there has, you know, pe people are still waiting, you know, they, they're, they have their day in court, they're able to present whatever evidence they're able to find. Uh, and any credible evidence will be treated with great significance. But uh, so far, there has just been, there, there just hasn't been any to speak of in any meaningful way. That's right. The, the last count that I saw was something like one for 36 on their legal challenges. So I'm, I'm sure that more uh, are coming. All right, let's let's return back to the, the world of legal court orders. And I'm sorry to do this, but it bears mentioning because, hey, it's, it's great pro-life news. Good news out of the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals, which includes Louisiana, Mississippi, and Texas uh, for our listeners. Uh, Baptist Press reports that the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals in New Orleans ruled November 23rd that the states of Texas and Louisiana have the right to find that Planned Parenthood affiliates are unqualified to participate in their Medicaid programs. The decision also affects Mississippi, the other state in the Fifth Court. Uh, one of our colleagues, Chelsea Sobolik, she was quoted in this article in Baptist Press, and she said that we, the ERLC, are thankful for the Fifth Circuit opinion because it is an ERLC priority to ensure that taxpayer dollars do not fund abortion. Uh, Josh, can you just talk a little bit more? Why is this so significant about Planned Parenthood not receiving Medicaid dollars? Well, the simple answer is that Planned Parenthood is the largest uh, single organization in the abortion lobby. And that there is, you know, a lot of times there's all of these word games that are played with talking about how what what Planned Parenthood does uh, with funding that it receives. And this this taxpayer dollars don't go directly to funding abortions. They fund other services uh, that Planned Parenthood is involved in that, that are critical for women's health. But it is that it that is like 
the equivalent of my household has one budget and you can tell me that you're giving me $500 to pay for X item in my budget. But what you're really doing is adding $500 to my household income for that month. And we as a country uh, are have, have long been committed to the idea that taxpayer funds should not be used to uh, help provide abortions. And so uh, this is a significant thing. And it's something that the ERLC is doing all the time. We're all always, always uh, trying to raise uh, the alarm for and, and hold up the banner of the cause of life. And so in this case, this is something uh, that is, you know, deeply significant. Okay. And for the next item, uh, Lindsay, do you, do you hear that sound? Not if it's the Tennessee fight song. That's right, Lindsay. <laughs> it's Rocky Top. Dateline, so big orange country. So there was some big pro-life news this week. Honestly, it's it's kind of a heartwarming story, right? Out of out of Knoxville, where uh, an embryo that was housed at a clinic and was housed 27 years ago, Molly was frozen on October 14th, 1992, and then thawed by the National Embryo Donation Center Lab. 27 years broke a record for the longest time an embryo had been frozen before birth. This is amazing. It sounds like something out of science fiction, right? That that people from years ago would have never been able to fathom. But um, you know, may may their the Gibson tribe increase in the sense that uh, the Lord would raise up families that want to adopt these embryos. It just you think about it, and uh, it's just sad that this little life was just frozen there for twenty seven years, and we wouldn't have known Molly uh, apart from her parents adopting her and giving life to her. And so it really is incredible. I, I'm not, I don't know. I, I feel like the Lord has to put a special calling on your life, you know, to this. Husband and wife have to be on board, but it's just incredible. It's also kind of, isn't it strange to think like, say you were 26 and then you had a 27-year-old embryo. It's kind of, it's interesting. It's just amazing what our technology can do. It is amazing. And, you know, this is a subject that none of us really feel equipped to even talk about. But the truth is that what we're talking about, like, this is heroic. Embryo adoption is literally rescuing people who are fro- like frozen people, people who are frozen in time, and that they're, they're not a potential life. They are a life, but they're a life that is that is not able to be realized and lived and enjoyed because these embryos are, you know, at these uh, facilities and they're, they literally are just frozen in time. It is like a life in pause. And these parents who choose to adopt these embryos are, are really doing something that is heroic. It is remarkable. Uh, yes, the science is incredible because we're able to, uh, to rescue and give life to people who otherwise are just, you know, in embryonic form are frozen in time. Well, and it, at first hearing of something like this, it can seem a little terrifying. <laughs> and I've got people that have in my life who have heard about this and they're like, what? Are are you serious? Because it is so different. And so I would encourage you, you know, if your first reaction to this because you haven't heard of it before is something other than her- it being heroic, then it, if it's more like fear or whatever, to look more into this, to research this. Because as Josh said, it truly is heroic. It may not be for everyone, but we're so thankful for the people that God uses to bring these little people to life. All right. And often we uh, we talk about things that uh, come out of Hollywood, and uh, this this is this is certainly one of them. Uh, so Ellen Page, uh, many of our listeners may remember her as the young star of the the movie Juno. 
uh, that was about adoption. Well, she now wants to be called Elliot and be recognized as a man. Uh, From NBC News, her quote is, I can't begin to express how remarkable it feels to finally love who I am enough to pursue my authentic self. I've been endlessly inspired by so many in the trans community. Uh, Josh, I'm sure, you know, with all the work that you do in ethics, uh, you've got some, some thoughts about this. As a matter of fact, you wrote some of them down this week for the RLC. Yeah, Brent, I, um, seeing this happen this week, uh, this announcement that came from Ellen Page, and then also seeing a, on the other side of the transgender movement, something that they would take as very negative, but I actually think it's a really positive step. The high court in the United Kingdom issued a ruling where they basically denied that uh, children under the age of 16 and potentially even 16 and 17 year olds are not able to give informed consent to receive uh, puberty blocking medication and potentially even more uh, serious uh cross-sex hormone treatment. And so uh, that was a really big deal. But as I was looking at this situation with, uh, with Ellen Page, to me, it is, it is tragic that we are at a place in society where we have rejected some of the most basic truths about what it means to be man uh, and woman or male and female. And so I, I wrote about this as, as it relates to God's design. And then also just to try to help help Christians understand that transgenderism is based on this really flawed ideology that not only goes against the theology that we embrace as Christian, but but literally goes against uh, the natural order and biological science and trying to help uh, people understand that, that it is totally normal, especially for children, to experience discomfort in their bodies. It is totally normal uh, to have questions and wrestle through different issues related to uh, your both your body and your sexuality, but uh, that that is no reason to think that in some way you are not the person that God created you to be, or by changing some of the fundamental aspects of your personhood, that somehow that's going to lead to finding yourself, because the real answer is found in in the gospel, and finding yourself actually looks like embracing God's design uh, for you as a person and for what it means to be male or female. That's a strong word. And Lindsay, sorry, I took a little bit of your content section and brought it into my section. So I know you get turfy sometimes. I know. Well, listen, I'm glad you did because I just could not bring myself to highlight Josh one more one more <laughs> week. I didn't want this to seem like the Josh show. <laughs> it really is the Josh platform with Lindsay and Brent sometimes. <laughs> All right. And lastly, I thought this was a fun note to end on. Uh, the United Press International Uh, They have this story up this week. The state of Hawaii announced it is offering free round-trip tickets to Honolulu to people who work remotely and are willing to dedicate some of their time toward contributing to the community. The report states the temporary residence program dubbed Movers and Shakas in reference to the Hawaiian hand gesture often interpreted as hang loose – offers people who work remotely online the chance to do their jobs from the comforts of the tropical state. Lindsay, I saw that you actually already signed up as I was reading this. Yeah, I. this is the first I've heard of this, but I'm going to go tell Justin, and we may just be on a plane pretty soon. So see y'all later. <laughs> that little baby's going to be born in Hawaii. Yes, yes and have a Hawaiian name because we still don't have a name picked out. So maybe that that's just Providence. Moana? Well, the baby is a boy, so probably not Moana for oh. me. It doesn't seem to fit. 
Mo. Just call him Mo. Mo. There you go. Mo. <laughs> Look, Hawaii is on my bucket list. And the way that you can know that is that earlier today, my son came and asked my wife, Mom, what, what is a bucket list? Uh, it's, it's one of those things that I really, really want to do. I don't think that in this particular moment, I'm going to be able to take advantage of that, although that would be incredible. So I'll have to save that trip to Hawaii for sometime down the road. Gotcha. All right. Well, Lindsay and Josh, that's your look at This Week in Culture. This episode of the ERLC podcast was sponsored by The Good Book Company, publisher of Searching for Christmas by J.D. Greer. Meet the awesome God at the heart of the familiar Christmas story. This book is perfect for giving to unbelieving friends and family this Christmas. Find out more at thegoodbook.com. So, Dane, we're so excited to have you on the podcast today. We want to say thanks so much for joining us. As we are getting started, would you tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do? And while you're at it, could you tell us one thing God is teaching you in this season of life and ministry? You bet, Josh. Great to talk with you. Thanks so much for uh, having me on. I am serving as a pastor at Naperville Presbyterian Church in suburban Chicago. Uh, I'm about seven weeks in, spent 10 years at Crossway uh, in Wheaton, one town north of us here. Yeah, I loved working there, but the Lord um, plucked me up and parachuted me into the pastorate, and so I'm serving here and loving it. Oh boy, what is God teaching me? Uh, the first thing that comes to mind, guys, is prayer. Actually, our associate pastor and I are on a bit of a prayer journey right now. Just I, I'm realizing for myself how prayerlessness I have been. Part of this is through interacting with other pastors and friends, and uh, I need to grow. I've been underdeveloped in my prayer life. And and what's forced it is this time of lockdown and difficulty. And, and I think one way to put it would be, I am now beginning to see what God will do with our and my weakness plus prayerfulness that he could never do really through my strength and prayerlessness. <laughs> so that's what I'm well, that's what I'm really learning right now. Man, that's so good. And, and thank you for the humility you're exhibiting and just revealing that in this moment. Um, I mean, it's it's hard to think that anybody from the Ortland tribe uh, would, <laughs> would, would uh, have those kinds of uh, issues that you deal with, but I uh, really appreciate you sharing that with us, Dane. So listen, our, our podcast, it focuses on Christians and culture. Can you tell us what things in culture you and the folks around you are paying attention to right now? Oh, wow. There's so much to talk about culturally, isn't there? I mean, uh, from racial tension to COVID stuff, political tumult, unstable economy, um, we're thinking about talking about praying our way through all of these things. And I, I think what comes to mind, brother, is the liberating, hopeful reality that we are being forced right now as Christians to prove if we really believe what we have been saying all along we believe. <laughs> Namely, that um, God is over, not at the mercy of cultural tides, that real change happens in our culture from the ground up by, you know, not, not necessarily by Christians crowbarring new legislation into place, but by loving our next door neighbor and um, sharing the love of Christ in quiet, courageous, simple, ordinary ways. I mean, the Bible is filled with cultural chaos, such as what we're going through right now. The book of Esther or Daniel or First Peter, 
or Revelation, or, uh, you know, the many prophets who wrote during exile and captivity. The Bible's not for calm seas. The Bible is for Christians navigating stormy seas. So um, th this is not a season for Christians to wring their hands, but simply to live as if God is actually there. Maybe live that way for the first time ever. Uh, chaos is a fun time to be a Christian because you stand out more, people are more open, and you get to see what only God can do. That is so good. And it, it both challenges and encourages me in all kinds of ways. We get to do these interviews all the time. And I'm always fascinated by the things that people share. But one of the things you hit on just then, you made uh, the case once again for how the Bible really is just so applicable to our real lives and the things that we are facing. And so th thanks for doing that. Uh, in this next question, I want to turn to your book, Gentle and Lowly, which I have heard from so many friends uh, who have read it. And it has really just been a, a balm to their souls. Um, this is, you describe it as a book about the heart of Christ, and you say it's written for the discouraged, the frustrated, the weary, the disenchanted, the cynical, the empty. And I can imagine a lot of people listening to this podcast can identify with that, or they have people in their lives they're trying to minister to right now who can identify with that. Can you tell us why you think a deeper understanding of the heart of Christ is that kind of a balm for people who are struggling? Like, And, and how would you describe the heart of Christ? Wow. Well, brother, I, I would say that um, the, the right way to look at reality for all believers is not that most of us are doing fine, but then there's a little minority, a pocket of people who are, as you just said, discouraged, frustrated, empty, weary, and so on. That is actually, that's all of us all the time, just in different degrees in different ways. Everyone is always struggling their way through life. In different ways, we're all moving through life, navigating pain. Sometimes it heightens and gets real acute. Sometimes there's a, a traumatic event or, or something like that. But anguish is normal Christianity. I'm not saying it's the, the deepest truth about us or the deepest reality, but it is normal. So really, that this book is for everyone. How would I describe the heart of Christ? Well, I don't have to make it up. He describes his own heart. In fact, the only place in all four Gospels, I don't know, what is that, 90-some chapters of the Bible, in one place, he himself opens up his chest cavity and says, you want to know what my heart is? Let me tell you. And it is not, guys, what I would have expected. <laughs> he says he is gentle and lowly in heart. We might have read over that many times, but that's really worth staking a lifetime on of discipleship. That's a Christ you can enjoy being a disciple to because he's gentle. He's not, he, he's, he's not rough with us. He's, he's tender. He's accommodating <laughs> and he's lowly. In other words, he is the most accessible person in the universe. You don't have to go through security to get to him. You don't have to take a ticket and get in line. Uh, he's not going to put you on hold. Uh, he is lowly. He's the most accessible person out there. Uh, the eternal radiant divine son of God is most deeply, if he had his own personal website and you clicked on the about me, what would be most prominent is gentle and lowly in heart. That's not the Christ I've been following most of my life. And uh, I've really enjoyed being on this journey to get to know who he most deeply is. Well, that's great, Dane. And I want to echo what Josh said. So many people that I know have been just touched by your book and the things that you are revealing about Jesus. And one of the things that you reveal about him is the fact that Jesus is a tender friend. As a matter of fact, you devote an entire chapter 
uh, of your book to this idea. So how can Christians cultivate a, a deeper and active friendship with Jesus? Ooh, what a powerful thing. I mean, if we, if we don't, what a shell of the Christians we could be, we will be. How do we cultivate a deeper friendship with them? Well, this is something I'm trying to figure out, guys, and I, I need all the help I can get too. A couple thoughts come to mind. One is let him be a person, an actual person not a force, not an idea, not a philosophy. Uh, Hebrews in the New Testament is so clear alongside other portions of Scripture that he is a person uh, that doesn't diminish his divinity or deity in any way, but let him be an actual person. Let him befriend you. (laughs) Speak with him, especially through the Psalms. Uh, let him speak to you in his word, in all in all the scripture. I mean, he himself said even the Old Testament was about him ultimately. Let him speak to you in the Gospels. Um, go through life moment by moment, drawing strength from his love, as, as Schaefer would say, Francis Schaefer, as if he is actually there because he is, um, rather than believing on paper that he is there, but then functioning as if he isn't. So I, I would just say, let him be a person. Let him befriend you and, um, and nurture, nurture friendship. That is not diminishing who he is. That is honoring who he is to speak of Christ in terms not only of his being our Savior and Lord, but also his being our friend. Dan, I really like how you said that, uh, that it does not diminish him. I think a lot of times we're afraid to approach Jesus in those kinds of personal terms because uh, we are, for for whatever reason, uh, fearful of of drawing close to him or that that might appear disrespectful in some way. And so I think that's going to be a real invitation to a lot of people that are listening. As, a, as we move to our last question, we wanted to ask you one question about your dad, Ray Ortland, who is someone uh, who all of us at the ERLC deeply love and admire and respect. He's been such an incredible blessing, and his ministry has impacted the lives of so of countless people uh, and, and pushed them further and closer toward Jesus. So, so you refer to him several times throughout your book, and you talk about the formative influence that he had on you, particularly as it relates to your understanding of the heart of Christ. For the dads out there, could you share and maybe discuss uh, the opportunity that we have to shape our own children's lives and their understanding of the heart of Jesus as as we try to be fathers to our own kids? Mm, that's an urgent question, isn't it, guys? And um, one thought that comes to mind is, uh, now, especially when they're real young, you are God to your tiny kids. Uh, that they, they, they can't think in abstract terms, but they can see who's leaning over the crib. And so you you are giving them a picture of God, and that continues as they develop. And so I would I would encourage the dads out there to recognize the weight of the fact that they are going to be shaping uh, their kids' view of who God and who Christ is through the kind of dad they are. You know, Sinclair Ferguson uh, speaks of the way in preaching your people will uh, they'll associate the way you are, not just what you say, but your comportment, your the the countenance, your radiance, the aroma of who you are as a person. They'll associate that with Christ, <laughs> and they'll actually um, transpose that onto how they understand who the living Christ Himself is. Uh, Ferguson says, "You give your people a tincture through your preaching of how Christ actually is." I think the same is true, but all the more deeply in how dads are 
with their kids. You're giving your kids a tincture. You're giving them the aroma of how God is, of how Christ is. That doesn't mean <laughs> we're going to get it right. I screw this up all the time. We're going to be apologizing to our kids. Christ never has to apologize to us. But uh, what we want is we, we want to live a life of beauty. Uh, we, we want them to embrace truth, but they will believe Christian truth if they see Christian beauty, something attractive, magnetic, radiant, resplendent uh, in their dads. Uh, beauty makes truth appealing. A beauty of personhood, I mean. Ugliness of how we conduct ourselves towards our kids is going to make truth repulsive. We can't argue them into Christian maturity and discipleship. So what we want to do is, as dads, we want to so drink down the endless heart of Christ that what spills out of us is um, is that very thing, and we're passing it on to our kids. Um, I don't really know how to do that, but I'd sure like to grow in it. You know, that is such a incredible invitation and challenge to to know Christ so deeply that that is what our children experience as we live our lives and father them. And so, uh, man, what a what a, what a beautiful picture there, and I hope that that is helpful to a lot of the a lot of the folks that are listening. Uh, Dane, we want to say thanks so much for taking the time to join us uh, today, and we especially want to thank you uh, for the care you took in writing this book. It has been uh, so deeply influential for so many people, and it has shown them and, and brought them back to a picture of Jesus, and Jesus as a person, that so often we get caught up in, in the busyness of Christianity, that we miss Jesus at the heart of Christianity. And so thank you so much uh, for joining us and, and for your labors in, pr in producing this book. Oh, you are most welcome, guys. It, it, I, I love the ministry of ERLC. So whatever you guys are doing over there, just keep doing it. <laughs> well, thank you for that, Dane. I, I just want to, uh, I want to chime in with what Josh said. We love your family. Uh, and we are so appreciative uh, of the ways that you lead in your congregation and you're a voice nationally. Uh, so just thank you so much. Love you, brothers. Thank you. So now it's time for The Lunchroom, where every week we tell you about the things we've been talking about with one another. Lindsay, you're up first this week, so tell us what's on your mind. I wish our listeners could hear the breathing exercises that you go through before starting another section. <laughs> It's quite amazing, actually. <laughs> okay, so my, for my lunchroom this time, instead of bringing something with a link or whatever, or an article that I've been reading, because I've just been reading ERLC articles for my job, um, I want to ask you guys, what are you asking Santa for for Christmas? Gentle and Lowly by Dane Orlin. That's a good one. So there's a new biography that I have not put my hands on yet by, about James Baker, and I am really, really excited to get it. Man, I should have known that this would be incredibly boring with you two. <laughs> Do you have anything else fun to contribute? Uh, a new mattress. <laughs> oh, my word. Oh, Josh, anything? Look, I am... I'm just a boring person. I don't know what to tell you. Like, I am... The most exciting thing I'm going to do is, is put up a barn door in my house so that I can have one close off this office area and have some more privacy. That's the most exciting Christmas present I'm going to get, and I'm going to get it for myself. Yeah. I mean, I was going to say, like, <laughs> honestly, I, I get more enjoyment out of watching my kids with their presents, but <laughs> even that's not going to be very helpful for you, Lindsay, because one of the big <laughs> ticket items were— <laughs> 
One of the big ticket items we're getting for our daughters is a new desk. <laughs> oh, my word. The, folks, this is a look at uh, or a listen to what I have to, to work with around here and deal with. Well, I'm asking for a Tennessee hat, not Tennessee football, Tennessee as in the state with the TriStar logo. What color? Uh, I don't know. I told my husband to surprise me. Oh. Mm-hmm. They've got so, they've got the right shade of orange. Oh, do they? I don't want that shade. I want the Florida Gators shade of orange. But I'm no, also asking for uh, Hawaii. It's funny you mentioned Hawaii. Hawaii coffee. I mean, not like the Kona blend that they sell at Marshalls, but like the actual Hawaii Kona coffee from Hawaii. Purple Mountain is the kind we used to get when we had gone on our honeymoon. Uh, and then I am asking for, what did I ask for? I think I asked for a fashionable bag because I'm too cheap to buy those and there was a major sale. So I sent a link to my husband. So those are some, some fun things. Way better than a barn door. Thank you very much. Wow. Well, I got to tell you, if, uh, if the last uh, three or four minutes have not confirmed that we work at the public policy arm of the SBC... <laughs> There, nothing else will confirm. Yeah, I confirm thought it would that. be a fun little change in the lunchroom and wah wah. Well, look, Lindsay, I'm really sorry to bum you out, but if if it hasn't been apparent to all of our listeners up to this point, we're nerds, and, and um, that's just what you get uh, from working with people who are interested in government and public policy and Christian ethics. So uh, that's right. We get thanks, excited. Thanks for livening up our lives. We get excited about a television show that went off the air in 2006. <laughs> yes. Here's the other important thing, though, for Christmas. I don't know if y'all do this, but my husband did not grow up this way, and so he doesn't understand. We must have full-to-the-brim stockings with fun things in there. So the stockings we have hanging up on our mantle are probably like 18, 19 inches long, I guess. And he's like, that's the biggest stocking I've ever seen in my life. And uh, so we would always have our stockings packed with stuff, with like toothbrushes and candy and sometimes perfume and sometimes books, whatever. But I've told my husband, please fill up my stocking because it's just not right if it's not full to the brim. We give our kids oranges in their stockings. I hope that is not true. No, no, is it's Is that true. really true? Yeah, we put oranges in because oh. it's a reminder what? I, hey, people kids. used to really look forward to getting oranges. And so we oh, just your poor kids. We serve we we use it as a as a kind of a teaching <laughs> moment. Like, hey, we need to be thankful for whatever we get. That's that's true. It's a great teaching moment, but send them that's over right. to the Nicolays. I will make them a stocking that they will remember. <laughs> I just like that you started with toothbrushes and then went to candy. So yeah, these are, I, somebody yeah. who puts toothbrushes in as their like lead hey, item cannot criticize. Yeah, listen, if you put orange. like a princess toothbrush in your girl's stocking or a train toothbrush in Rhett's, they would love that. Look, I don't know how much of this is going to make it uh, off the cutting room floor, but I'll just say 
my favorite thing in the world are books. Uh, and I don't, I'm not a person who normally knows what I want, uh, in, in life. You know what I mean? Like I'm not a gift person. I don't think about, Oh, it'd be really great to get this stuff. Like you can ask my wife. It's, it's tough, but I always know what books I want. In fact, I have lists upon lists of books that I would like. And people always go, Oh, I don't want to buy you books because you already have those. And so just, you know, because I can't rant about this anywhere else in the world, I'll just say, I don't understand if there's a person in your life who has one thing they absolutely love and they say, this is what would make me happy. People are like, no, I'm not going to get that for you. I'll get you something else. Right. It's true. Totally Amazon gift you. cards for the win. Well. Okay, Brent, help us move on from this yeah, disaster this, this of a conversation. This segment is, uh, is, is at this point, I, I can't, I would be interested to see how many of our listeners have actually stayed <laughs> with us through this. Oh, they okay, have. So this is some They're, practical... They're leaving after you're right now while you start Well, that's okay. They, they can leave after I get through talking. <laughs> so here's something practical I, I thought was helpful in this, you know, kind of holiday season that we're in, meeting with lots of different uh, family, colleagues, hopefully uh, safely and wisely. But David Brooks, who is a conservative columnist at the New York Times, he had a column recently called uh, Having Deeper Conversations. And he gave, he listed out nine different ways that you can help just kind of pull more out of those folks that you maybe only see once a year um, around holiday time. And so uh, I loved this part in particular. Ask open-ended questions. Many of us have a horrible tendency to ask questions that imply judgment. Where did you go to school? Or we ask yes-no questions. Did you have a good day? Which basically shut off interesting answers. Better questions start with, what was it like? Or tell me about a time. Or how did you manage to cope while your wedding was postponed for a year uh, in, in this pandemic? So I just thought this was some really good practical advice. And so I'm just highlighting it here uh, for, for anyone who, who might need that, that kind of guidance after we've all been uh, socially isolated and have now become socially awkward. <laughs> Yeah, I call uh, his bluff in this article because I just tried to helpfully ask an open-ended question that showed interest in my co-hosts, and they they failed. I'm not sure we failed so much as we just disappointed. <laughs> Maybe, yeah. You just gave one-word answers, like a, like a teenager, talking to a teenager. I told you the specific book that I want. That's true. And, and so did Josh. So no, we, we didn't give you one-word answers. We're good. We'll let our listeners judge. You can send us some stuff on your Christmas list. We'll make sure that it gets purchased for you. Brent, Brent I thought that was uh, pretty interesting. I mean, David Brooks is, is incredible and a really great thinker. If you haven't read his uh, book, The Second Mountain, I would encourage uh, our listeners to get it. It's, it's weird because it's kind of like about the... In a, in a broad sense, it's kind of about the second half of your life, but there is this idea of reverse engineering your life where you're spending time, especially if you're younger, uh, thinking about what you want to have accomplished before you die and then trying to live your life according to that roadmap. Anyway, it's, it, it was really, really interesting. My lunchroom today is not anything that's going to be helpful to anyone, but I want to say I grew up in Eastern North Carolina, football. God love it. I, I, I've enjoyed watching football as a surrogate fan for all of my friends who grew up in SEC country, uh, but I did not. And so in in Eastern North Carolina, we just we just waited for basketball season to roll around. It is back. Uh, I have really enjoyed uh, over the last several days watching the Tar Heels play in the Maui Invitational, which 
hey, you know, the Maui Invitational, what a big tournament that they have at the beginning of every season in Maui, in Hawaii. But this year they couldn't travel to Hawaii. So do you know where they had it? In Asheville, North Carolina, which is a really great destination unless you were supposed to be in Hawaii. So anyway, it was really interesting to see them there in the mountains in North Carolina, and um, which I watched on television, but they did keep the Maui Invitational big, you know, center court piece there. So maybe they felt like they were in Hawaii playing from, for a stadium full of, well, cardboard signs. In any case, uh, it was fun. They fell short uh, in the final in the tournament and lost to Texas, and that was disappointing. But Shaka Smart is one of my uh, favorite coaches in the league. And so uh, good for him. And it's going to be fun to see the Tar Heels play Iowa next week. On another note, uh, off of college football, I would just encourage you the Netflix version of the movie Hillbilly Elegy just came out. The book Hillbilly Elegy by J.D. Vance. Uh, It basically tells the story of like a forgotten people in Appalachia. And so it's a really, really interesting uh, memoir that he wrote. And it was predictably panned Uh, by all of the film critics in the world, but it has actually gotten really, really strong reviews uh, just from the audience. I have not, I can't give you a um, disclaimer about what's in the movie. So use your own judgment as to whether or not it's appropriate for you, your family, your spouse to watch. But I wanted to point that out. It, It is something that I intend to see, assuming that, assuming that everything checks out on it's, it's an okay movie to watch. So this is interesting. So Josh, you're from you're from on the other side of the mountains from me in North Carolina. Right. And you didn't just you you just said Appalachia as opposed to Appalachia, which I think is interesting given that Appalachian State University is on your side of the mountains. That's true. And honestly, I think that most North Carolinians would say Appalachia. In fact, my wife corrected me for saying it that way the other day. Oh, but okay. All right. For, just for whatever sure. reason, I have picked up the Appalachia uh, pronunciation. Now, what I'm curious about is how do the people in the movie pronounce Appalachia? I don't know how they said it. Uh, we'll say it in the movie, but I can tell you that in the audiobook, I'm pretty sure that J.D. Vance, who not only it's his memoir, but he also read the book for the audio version, he says Appalachia. Interesting. Interesting. Well, I have to say, as a East Tennessean, I'm a proud Appalachian American, and uh, so that's the that's the the saying that I would I would go with. But, um, you know, honestly, I've never read Hillbilly Elegy, and I feel like it's one of those books I, I just, I need to do it. Um, I, I know that it came out several years ago, and but now that this movie is out, it's it's kind of rekindling uh, my, my appetite to, to do so. Even though it takes place, it takes place, what, in Ohio? I think it takes place in Ohio. I don't know. It, it should be interesting, but uh, I'm glad you pointed that out. Well, that's going to do it for the show today. Uh, thanks so much for listening. Just as a reminder, you can find links to all the things we talked about today in the show notes. And if you like the podcast, please consider helping us spread the word by sharing the episode on social media or going into your podcast app and leaving us a rating or review. But for Brent and Lindsay and myself, we want to say thanks so much for listening. And we will be back next week with more content. Thank mm-hmm. you.